Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Good evening, good afternoon, uh, good morning, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, other than listening to a Journal Club podcast from SBGAN. I'm Alex Nicely, and our Journal Club host is Andrea Sienke. He's picked out for us two articles that have appeared in the February number of this year's volume. March. I'm sorry to interrupt you. March. We are already approaching springtime, Alex. Springtime. It's winter in my heart, Andy. It's winter in my heart. And life is ashes. And life is ashes. And it's from the March number. (laughs) So um, we'll start with an article from the United States that employs a buzzword. The buzzword is metabolomics. In metabolomics, you take a sample of plasma from a patient and run it through a mass spectrometer and all manner of other things. And then you see what the pattern of small molecules is, how much and what kind. This is a trawl, really, through the seas of biomarkers, seeing if anything can be picked out that characterizes patients with a particular disorder. The disorder in this case is eosinophilic esophagitis. And as I understand it, um, some kids have wicked bad eosinophilic esophagitis without any symptoms. That is, you don't know um, whether or not your treatment is achieving anything until you put the scope down, which can be tedious for the endoscopist as well as certainly for the child and for the family. Did they find anything new and different? Well, Alex, um, to be fair, it's a very complicated topic. Um, EOE is uh, quite a new disease with an ever-increasing prevalence, and we do not know very much about the pathophysiology at the moment. So this is, um, from my point of view, the first real study on metabolomics in EOE. And um, to be fair, it's only a very small cohort. They have um, 14 patients with EOE and 28 controls, but they picked up the patients before starting the therapy. So we have some kind of ground zero where we can have a baseline um, what's going on in EOE. And um, they picked something up. So so they found some differences in vitamin pathways and pyridoxin metabolism and lipid metabolism and um, quite a similar pattern to a more severe atopic disease. At the moment, it's quite unclear what we can make of this because um, it's just a baseline. But there is at least um, the possibility that we might have some kind of biomarker in this whole um, sea of metabolomics, which will make all right. Um, my turn to interrupt. My turn to interrupt. Okay. <laughs> um, sure. Well, you've got. You don't have a baseline. You've got a base point. To have a baseline, you need to have a second point, 
I remember that much from geometry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so we have so, a base so, point. Hey, 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 I'm not done yet. And, <laughs> and you need to find out what happens to these kids after they've been treated and endoscopically demonstrated to have, endoscopically and biopsy demonstrated, to have cured their disease. Then yeah. you take a look at them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I really hope that the authors will follow the cohort and will repeat the um, metabolomics um, and therapy and see whether um, the observed differences and imbalances are corrected or whether they just stay the same. This will then allow us to have a better means to to follow up these patients other than doing a re-endoscope every four to six weeks, which is, as you pointed out, very painful for many of these um, um, young children. Hmm. So here we are with a piece of blank paper, metabolomics in eosinophilic esophagitis, and we have one point, and we're waiting for the second point, so that we can draw a line and then start to feather out that line, broaden it, and investigate how that line behaves. Yeah. I have to say, I think um, it's quite a good base point, even though um, the number of cases is quite low, because the authors spent a lot of effort in normalizing the, the um, disease groups or the, the control group in respect to the UE group, which is not very easy because you need to have a reason to do the scoping, even in the control group. So even the patient, the children in the control group, they probably had some kind of symptoms. And that's always a little bit tricky to normalize the patients for that. And they had some quite some small differences, but overall they did a very great job in doing that. They started out with a patient sample of 100 kids, didn't they? Yes. And then on endoscopy and biopsy, they found that 14 of them had bona fide eosinophilic esophagitis. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. What's your yield in upper endoscopy? How, how many of how many of the 100 kids seen at your institution would have eosinophilic esophagitis? I would think also at least 10 to 20%, 20%. It's really dramatically increasing over the last um, years. So, um, so in the United States, it seems that they're using the same criteria, more or less, to take a child to upper endoscopy. Yeah, seems so. Okay. And then what we have is 14 kids and 28 controls, match controls, two per kid, right? Yeah, right. Let me do some quick number work here. 14 plus 28, that's 42. And you've got plasma samples from another 58 kids who had something wrong with them, something wrong enough with them to come to endoscopy. Maybe some of it was H. pylori. Maybe some of it was celiac yeah. disease. Have we just discovered an entire... It's a gold mine for least publishable study, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Probably there, there, there might be um, some more data in this um, cohort for another um, publication. Yeah, I agree. Well, watch this space is all I can say. Yeah. Do you want to go to the other end of the GI tract now and talk about the other article? Yeah, well, um, sounds sounds a great idea, actually. Um, so we move from, from the top to the very bottom of the um, intestinal tract. A very different topic, um, and it's, it's, it's more a clinical study, and um, it focuses on abdominal x-rays for the diagnosis of fecal loading. I, I have to give the, I have to give the entire title I really do. Yeah. Okay. Inter and intra observer variation in interpretation of fecal loading on abdominal radiographs. Isn't that a mouthful? Uh, excuse the phrase mouthful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's a mouthful. And I'm doing um pediatrics now for around 20 years and as a junior doctor, I can tell you, abdominal x-rays was always a standard procedure in diagnosing um, fecal loading and constipation. And as you all know, or as you all should know, the um, abdominal radiographs are currently not recommended anymore by the ESCON for diagnosing constipations. But at least in our institution, we got a lot of referrals from smaller um, hospitals with um, patients presenting who already underwent abdominal radiographs for diagnosing fecal um, loading and constipation. So obviously, there are still a lot of people out there actually believing that abdominal x-rays is a good idea or is a proper tool um, for diagnosing constipation. I'm going to ask you to take a quick step back from that. Maybe a kid comes in just saying, my tummy hurts. And then they get a flat plate of the belly to see whether or not there's anything that they can identify. Something like, hey, free air under the diaphragm. And then somebody says, you know, there seems to be a lot of poop in that colon. Are people getting these x-rays specifically to identify whether or not constipation is present or are they getting it for other purposes and then saying maybe the kid is constipated well unfortunately um the children really get these x-rays for fecal loading assessment and diagnosing of constipation because most of the other diseases you can easily diagnose using ultrasound Okay. So they move. So a flat plate is no longer what it used to be yeah. when I was back in my training. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We do not do that very often anymore. To be fair, only if we expect some kind of um, ileus mm -hmm. or something like necrotizing enterocolitis. Mm -hmm. And in most other cases, um, you, you get the diagnosis just by doing ultrasound or any other diagnostic studies like blood sampling or whatever. But what's really interesting in this study is that they took a hundred x-rays and they showed these x-rays 
to 12 different physicians. Four from pediatric gastroenterology, four from radiology, and four from just general emergent medicine. And in each of these groups, they had two junior doctors and two senior doctors. So a senior doctor was defined as being in the business for at least five years. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting, first of all, that it obviously doesn't matter whether you are a junior doctor or a senior doctor um, in terms of quality of interpretation of this X-ray. So, for example, the um, worst performance had a senior um, radiologist in this group. So um, this, from my point of view, clearly underscores that the interpretation of, of these X-rays for diagnosing constipation is very random. The thing that they, the thing that we haven't quite mentioned yet, and that makes a big difference, is that they showed the X-rays presented in different order to the same group of observers a month later. Yeah, I and wanted said, to come to that. And they yeah. said, well, I got there first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they said, yeah. and they said, you know, you guys are rubbish at coming up with the same interpretation twice in a row. Yeah, this was really amazing. So, so some of these, these um, observers and um, had less than 20% um, Concordance. Accordance, accordance um, between um, the two interpretations, clearly demonstrating that um, it's just random. This has happened even after they took the observers, the interpreters, through a course that was meant to train them how, yeah. quote, scientifically, close quote, to interpret radiographs for signs of fecal loading. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There are some kind of scores out there. One published by Bar, the so-called Bar score, which is um, supposed to get some some more objective assessment of fecal loading, and even this scoring system obviously does not work. So, what this study clearly shows and very nicely demonstrates is that. Abdominal radiographs are neither reliable nor re reproducible in terms of diagnosing fecal constipation. Whoa. Sometimes, some days we think we're getting somewhere, and some days we realize we're not getting anywhere at all. That's right. That's right. And But, but it's very important to just realize when we are on the wrong track and then we need to correct it and we need to well to stop what we've done before and move to proper diagnostic tools like clinical examination um, and appropriate history taking and maybe um, some more profound ultrasound studies or whatever but for fecal constipation Abdominal radiographs are just a nonsense. How do you give that feedback to the local practitioner who 
ordered that radiograph in the first place? This is, um, well, it, it's a difficult question, but um, I think um, every physician should be or should have sufficient self-reflection um, to accept when treatment policies and diagnostic um, procedures change over time and um, they should adjust and learn. I mean, it's, of course, you cannot go there and say, well, what you've just done is rubbish. You just show show them the paper and it's, it's also very easy to understand, to be fair. So it's not metabolomics. So everyone can <laughs> understand that, even me. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and you can show them. So, and, and maybe if you use this paper and demonstrate that abdominal radiographs are not, not a good tool to diagnose fecal constipation, and they see that even senior radiologists have a problem with that, they might accept that this is not the proper state-of-the-art diagnostic tool anymore. And they will change practice, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Fingers yes. crossed. Well, it was a relief, I must say, to encounter a paper for discussion that did not involve dimensions of columns and flow rates and choices of solvents and so on and so forth. And as you say, this article was something that even I could understand. I would like to point out that this is an article that's been selected by Espigan as uh, qualifying for continuing medical education. So let me urge you to get not the February issue, but the March issue of JPGN out and pick up those points by reading at least this article, and if you're brave, going after the eosinophilic esophagitis article as well. Very well said, Alex. Very well said. Thank you very much, and thank you, listeners, as always, for listening in. Give us some feedback. Espigan welcomes suggestions on how to make this podcast better, and we look forward to hearing from you.